and welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. Hi, I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I started this podcast because I always hear from people, particularly young women, who want to be in the business of beauty. And a good way to learn more about the industry is hearing how other people got their start. There's more than one way to follow your dreams, and I hope that my guests will give you the inspiration to forge your own path. Today, I'm happy to welcome Karen Chambers, Executive Vice President of Iman Cosmetics, a global leader of beauty for women of color. Today, we'll discuss her career journey and how she went from a communications major to a leading force in the beauty industry. Karen, welcome. Oh, thank you, Corinne. I appreciate you having me. So could you give our guest your 30-second bio? Sure. Um, I am Executive Vice President of Iman Cosmetics. I started uh, my career in uh, product development and marketing. I've worked with uh, Patti LaBelle and I've worked with um, a, a number of multicultural brands such as Posner and Dark and Lovely. And it's been a tremendous, tremendous ride to go from starting right at the bottom get my hands dirty in cosmetics to being able to work with a global leader like Iman. Right. So was the beauty industry a destination or a detour for you? It was definitely a destination. Sometimes I, I use the phrase that I think I've got lipstick in my blood. Uh, from the time I was in high school, I was the one that people would go to. Karen, can you do my makeup for the prom? Can you do my makeup for this, that? And the other thing, I started experimenting with makeup when I was probably about 11 or 12 years old, sneaking into my mom's makeup. So it was definitely a destination. I didn't know what I was going to do in the industry, but I definitely knew that I wanted to get into the industry somehow, some way. So how did you go about getting your first job and what was your first job in the industry? Well, it's interesting. I've got two first jobs to mention. One was my very, very first job when I graduated from uh, Rutgers University. And that was as an assistant editor for a um, salon magazine. And that job, uh, it, it was just different times, as you know, Corinne. It was the early 90s. It was real easy to kind of soar into that first job experience. Um, but it was as an assistant editor for a salon magazine. And the reason why that job was very significant is because I was supposed to just be working on editorial, but I loved makeup so much that when my editor-in-chief said that she needed to do a multicultural photo shoot, I kind of talked and finagled my way into getting to do makeup for the photo shoot and getting my first tear sheet. So that's why that one was significant. And then the first the next first job I want to mention is the first job within corporate cosmetics. And that one's pretty significant to this conversation because I was working behind the counter uh, at, at Macy's. I think it was Bamberger's at the time. I'm really dating myself. But um, I, was, I was working for a brand that, uh, that focused on concealing products. And I, I, it just, it really, 
actually, no, I was working for a brand that was next door to a brand that w- that made concealers. And I found myself selling less of my brand and more of the concealing brand because when people would come in and they'd have something going on with their skin, as I had experienced personally growing up, because I had some hormonal issues that led to a lot of discoloration in my teens and early 20s. So I felt really connected to this the concealer brand. And one day I just decided out of nowhere, it was no kind of protocol career-wise, but I looked on the back of the packaging, discovered that the brand was headquartered in New Jersey where I lived. And out of nowhere, I just wrote this passionate letter to the, and at the time we weren't even using Google and the internet and all that. I, I, I just literally called up, found out who was the person in charge. I didn't even know what the job distinctions were or what the title was. And I sent them this passionate letter and I said, look, I am selling a lot of your products because I feel really strongly about it. And I would love to one day work for you. And sure enough, they called me a week later and gave me a job. Wow. So let's back up for a minute. So for those of people who don't know who are listening, a tear sheet. Oh, yes. Thank you. (laughs) A tear sheet is what um, what people in the magazine and print magazines used to get to show uh, examples of their work. So it was an actual page of the magazine so that you'd get a magazine. And if you worked in a magazine, you got boxes of bound magazines and then you got what we'll call tear sheets. The, the magazine printed in individual sheets so that you could take out the pages that you wanted um, for various reasons to send to advertisers or to, to people that you credit. But if you had work or if you were an artist, a makeup artist, a hairdresser, a stylist, you wanted those for your book. Now all of that is online. So you probably have <laughs> <laughs> never heard that term before. Um, but, uh, and then secondly, you know, when, when we both Karen and I were starting out, it was uh, looking the one ads or, you know, um, that was all primarily how we looked for jobs. But what I think is really interesting about what you said is, and what someone can take away today is that you didn't look for a job opening. You created an opportunity for yourself. Correct. And, and I think, you know, that's why I really wanted to tell that story um, today is because I think sometimes it's so easy to get into this idea of what is protocol. And I'm trying not to fast forward to, uh, to, to where we're going with it. But I, I, I think it's real. Passion is so important. Passion and know-how and allowing someone to know, look, I really want to be there to contribute. And I think when I, when I think about job seekers now, sometimes the focal point is on, well, what do I want to get from this? And in that moment, I believe that I got that job, that they created that job for me because my passion was oozing in that letter. They knew that this young lady was so into this brand and into what it could do and the philosophy of the brand that she was going to dive in here and really be committed and, and do whatever it took to be a success and to be an asset to the brand. And uh, and I was, literally. I, I climbed the ladder very quickly once I got there because I was voracious about learning everything about the brand, uh, learning how it, how it, what the ingredients were all about. At the time, the job that they actually hired me for was uh, assistant brand manager. And I didn't know anything about brand management. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was supposed to be. But I knew that I was willing to learn everything about this brand and dive in and work late and roll my sleeves up. And 
uh, I really do believe that the, what, what got me from point A to point B with that first assistant role into the next managerial level was just that passion and that ability to really learn and to become an expert. And I, I think that that is, that is really, really significant. And that's really, honestly, the, the, the philosophy that I've kept with me all these years. Yeah. And let's go back. So you worked for a time behind the counter. And yes. so there's a skill set you have to learn. I mean, what skill set do you think that you learned there that helped you in your career? And what was that like, like working behind, the, you know, working for a brand behind the counter, interfacing with customers daily? Ah, excellent question. Because once again, that's something that, that, that never left me is this idea that the consumer is first, that the consumer is really important. I, of course, would have loved to have been a celebrity makeup artist. But what I've learned now all these many years later, having worked with many celebrity makeup artists, is that it's important to still always have your customer first. So regardless of whether your customer is somebody famous or whether your customer is just an everyday lady, uh, it's, it's extremely important to put her first. And so I was always extremely compassionate, very punctual, really professional. Uh, one of the things that I personally didn't, I never liked was someone who was pushy or arrogant. So I was never that way. And so I really took a look at what were the goals and the deliverables that were expected of me and made sure that I not only met expectations, but exceeded expectations. Like I set the bar for myself higher than anyone who was managing me because, and I didn't even know, Corinne, at the time where it was going to go, but it was just a personal work ethic of mine that that it was very, very important to think about deliverables, to put that customer first, and to, to, to be extremely professional and, and, and set the bar high as far as work ethic. So what does an assistant brand manager, what do you find out what the, were the responsibilities <laughs> of an assistant brand manager? Once you became, once you learned what it was, what they were. It's, right, exactly. Once, you know, nowadays everybody talks about brand. I think it's the, the, the second word out of everyone's mouth. But at the time it, it wasn't the popular term. So what I had to come to understand is that the brand was, uh, was, it was everything that represented what that name of that product was. And so uh, in, in that job as, as an assistant brand manager, what my role was, was to support the manager and to support our vice president at the time in the objectives, the sales objectives, the marketing objectives, the packaging objectives, uh, the consumer relationship obje objectives. So a lot of those early days were learning um, how to write brand plans, how to make some, um, some, some goals in relationship to how we grow that particular business, how we move flexibly with the times as the marketplace changes. Um, one of the things that I got to work on early on, which is what uh, gave me such an, uh, a passion around multiculturalism, is that, uh, that I came in right at the time that the brand was really discovering that they needed to expand their shade range. So I got to work on um, competitive shopping and 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 doing and working a little bit with the labs uh, as far as 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 shade development, et cetera. Now, at the time, as an assistant, 
I wasn't at, at the forefront of that decision making, but I was in the process of supporting those other roles. And so, again, I took that as an opportunity to really learn, like to ask extra questions. Well, what is that? Well, what does that mean? You know, and depending on the size of the company, sometimes you get to have a lot of hands on if it's a smaller company. And sometimes you're a little bit more siloed into a very specific job role if you're with a larger organization. But I, I learned everything. I learned about the numbers and how uh, how things add up, how I learned about what is a return on an investment. So if a brand is, is, is wanting to grow by X percent, finding out how much if they place this type of advertising or that type of advertising, what is, what's going to be the consumer impact and what's going to impact the bottom line. So in those early days, it was a, a, a lot of learning and a lot of supporting, a lot of doing paperwork, um, but it, it gave me the foundation for being able to, to grow in the industry. So how did you end up in product development? Because when, when I think of product development, I think of, a lot of times I think of the science, the R&D, the, the actual lab work, but it's a little bit more than that, isn't it? It is. And there, there are a number of, of phases to uh, product development and the life of a product. And like I said, part of how I learned is that I literally used to sneak back into the lab area at the time. A lot of times now with brands, we, we have uh, different manufacturing partners that, that we outsource to. At the time, the brand I was working for, they were doing all of their own manufacturing. So I'd sneak out into the back operational area. And there was a lovely lady there who taught me, like, Karen, here's how you match shades. And here's how uh, here's what the different, like when you're looking at formulations, like I, I'd have to put type in formulations onto paperwork, et cetera. And then I was curious, well, what do all these things mean? What do these ingredients mean? And she would explain those things to me. So anyway, back to your question, product development, there's the the, the exact science piece, which are the, the, the laboratory technicians who are actually mixing formulations. But prior to that, someone has to say, there's a product need. I, I need a product that's going to do X. It's going to cover discoloration or it's going to fade the skin to, or it's going to do what have you. And then there's some research that needs to happen around what are some important traits of that product, uh, what we want that product to look like and smell like, and what are the ingredients that are important to our customers to, to include. So the, the life cycle really begins at the creative stage. And then there is the, 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 the research and development part prior to getting to the, the actual lab technicians to, to, to put the thing together. So um, that's the piece that, that I spent a lot of years working on is what do we want to formulate and what is the end game of that particular product? And then working in tandem with, uh, with the scientists who were able to, to bring that um, to fruition. Yeah. So, so that, you know, for those who are listening who are interested in beauty, you know, understanding that product development has a lot of legs and a lot of areas that are open for you to explore is, is really critical to know. So um, a, a lot of times when people speak to me about what they're interested in, they have a, a very narrow view of what mm -hmm. the industry has to offer. And, you know, just hearing this conversation from Karen, is, 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 it opens up a world of where you might fit in. And Definitely. it's good to know. It's good to know. Start Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp, where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. 
head over to our website, beautybizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. this, Corinne, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think, you know, people who have, and particularly women, when we have different interests, whether our interests are more on the science side or whether our interests are more on the analytics side or whether our interests are, we're number crunchers or what have you, there's so many opportunities for us in the beauty industry because it takes a lot to get to that lipstick or what have you. There are a lot of steps and stages, as you mentioned. And so I think it's really, really important for people, no, no matter what their field of study is in school, to consider how that might be applicable within the industry because there are a lot of, there are a lot of um, paths into the industry. And, right. and I didn't know that going in. And, and it's far broader than I had even anticipated what has become exciting to me is learning how many paths there are into this industry. Because when I meet other beauty professionals, we have all come from such varied backgrounds. You know, I had, I had majored in communication and originally I thought I was primarily going to be a, a writer. What's the difference between working on hair care and makeup? Because you worked on Dark and Lovely. Well, actually, I worked on Dark and Lovely Cosmetics, but I worked oh, on Dark had and Cosmetics Lovely. at one time. They did, they did at one time, and um, but but I can answer that to a degree because uh, we I worked in tandem with a team with the with the hair care team. Okay, and and there there are definitely similarities. There's similarities in branding and brand management. Period. So regardless of of what type of personal uh, personal care products you're working on, they're definitely similar similar things when it comes to planning and when it comes to the product development process and when it comes to the marketing process and budgets and those type of things and, and advertising, et cetera, those disciplines are, are, are pretty much the same. Where it differs is when you start to get into products, particularly chemical products, uh, it, it, it becomes a, a, a little more um, fine-tuned in that you're working a lot more with the FDA, you're working a lot more with, with legal, and, and the, the scientific process is different when something becomes more of a, like they call it an OTC or an over-the-counter uh, uh, drug, if you will. So right. if it's something that changes, if you will, like the molecular structure, like if we're talking about a relaxer or something like that, you, you generally have a different set of professionals working on that. And the process of getting that product from, from concept to the shelf is a little longer because you, you have more testing that's involved. When you're talking about a purely cosmetics item, it's, it's a little quicker to market because for the most part, if you have um, uh, testing that, that tests for uh, non-comedogenic or making sure that it, it doesn't cause allergic reactions, it's a shorter process than, than some of the hair care items. But a lot of it is similar. For me, um, I did go to beauty school for a short period of time before I graduated Rutgers, and I discovered for me that my, uh, my enthusiasm was more for the face than for the hair. Uh, so, so I, I, I left that to, to, to my colleagues on the other side, but they are very similar and both equally exciting. I think particularly for us as multicultural folks, because there's so much diverse and interesting things going on on both sides of, of, of the profession. Yeah, I think that's great. And I was also a kitchen beautician when I was, in <laughs> I didn't, I know my hairdresser, um, wanted me to go to beauty school. She said, she thought you, you should get your license. You should just get your license. She even told me that when I was working at Elle. She said, you should get, you should get, 
get the license because you should do that on the side. And I never did. But I just, I, you know, I, I, had a, I had a love for it, but not enough to do it, you know, all the time. So what do you think the unsung skill is that you need to succeed in the beauty industry? Flexibility. And why is that? <laughs> Flexibility is probably my superpower, uh, especially nowadays. The industry has changed so much. It, it, it changed periodically when I first started, but particularly over the past five years, I think the uh, social media has shifted uh, so much. Uh, our, our online shopping habits versus primarily brick and mortar. There's so many avenues having to do with the digital world that has changed the industry. And so, uh, and I and I know some of my my colleagues who are my age and older have had a challenge sometimes. You know, pivoting and and kind of letting go of some old beliefs. I mean, back in back in the day, Corinne, we we used to try to dictate what the color of the moment is, for example. Like, oh, yeah, everything is about, you know, it's all about this deep burgundy or it's all about purple. You know, there's a color story that everybody followed because here's what's happening in Paris and here's what's happening in Italy or here's what's happening uh, wherever. And nowadays, that's all gone out the window. I mean, social media has made it far more uh, an environment in which we have to be more cognizant of what our consumers are doing because they are, are, are doing their thing. Like you mentioned, being the, being the, 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 the kitchen hairdresser, like, well, all of a sudden the kitchen hairdresser becomes the millionaire, you know, exactly. Beca- because it, it, it has created this environment of cottage industry and, and also, and not just cottage industries, but having just everyday people become the professionals and become the experts. So if, if, if somebody is afraid of that or, or, or uh, you know, finds that intimidating, then they're going to have a problem because if you're not willing to listen to your customer and become peers almost with your customer, then you'll be stuck in another era. So flexibility has, I've learned so much over just the past, never mind five years, probably the past two years, because every time I've settled into, okay, this is how business is going. It's like, oh, take another turn, turn this way, turn that way. So I, I, I'd say that's the superpower. So, yeah, so there's a power in the pivot and the flexibility is, I, I, I would agree with that. So tell me and tell our, our listening audience what, you're, what you do in your current role. Sure. What I do in my current role as executive uh, vice president of Iman Cosmetics is I work directly with Iman to have her vision come to fruition for the brand. So that involves everything. So I, I oversee the entire team. Um, I, that includes our, our legal and, and our manufacturers and our advertising group and our marketing group and, and our operations and making sure that the vision that she's created gets practically trickled down into an actual end product that our customers then want to purchase. So there are a lot of, on a day-to-day basis, that involves a lot of things. It involves negotiating contracts. It involves making sure that uh, we're working with the best partners, the best ad partners, and, and making sure that now nowadays, for example, we do a lot of business with Amazon. So it's making sure that that goes smoothly. That's Amazon is a, is a, a, a big monster, you know, to tackle. Yeah, so it's yeah, yeah. But they've, they've also been a great partner for us. And so it really is learning um, 
all of the facets of the business and then bringing that together so that we continue to have a brand that after 25 years, we had our 25th anniversary last year, that we continue to be healthy and viable in the marketplace and that our next generation is as interested as I was when the brand first came out. And I remember seeing that little brown compact and going, oh my goodness, that's cute. You know, so, so, uh, so that, that really is, is my role to oversee that process and make sure that her vision hits the market. And my mother, I, I, I remember when the, land, the, the line launched and my mother said, I want stock in this. Is this stock available? <laughs> this is amazing. This foundation is groundbreaking. It's amazing. <laughs> I felt the same way mom did. And I was working on a competitive brand at the time. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> I had my eye on this brand a long time. And, and it's, it's, it's been great the, the past uh, 13 years that I've, that I've been with, with Iman. It's been wonderful. Now let's move on to our fast track questions. So what's the first beauty product you ever purchased that you can remember? Concealer, yeah. Like I mentioned, I had uh, discoloration on my face, and that was my number one thing. I was like, I gotta learn to cover this up. So, concealer was the first product. And what's the last beauty product you tried? The last product that I tried was I can't remember what uh, it was. One of the Shea Moisture uh, heavy duty uh, uh, lotions, because with all this washing my hands. <laughs> to take care, deal with this coronavirus. My hands were so dry and, uh, and, and a, a, a wonderful colleague and friend of a friend uh, is, is now overseeing that brand. And I was excited to support her and support them in, um, in, in buying the Shea Moisture products. Okay. What's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone? That I live by or leave alone. Um, the one that I live by is be yourself. Don't try to look like anybody else. It, it makes no sense to try to be a copycat. I believe that makeup is only there to enhance who you really are, not to not to make you into anyone else. Um, and what do I leave alone? This is terrible to say, but I really leave trends alone. I don't really have a lot of faith in trends. I believe that uh, are uh, you know that women are so creative and dynamic, and every day they're finding fun ways to take a lipstick and make it an eyeshadow and take a blush and make it something else. And so, uh, so I, I, I don't believe in being a, a slave to trends. I believe you, you know, let's do our own thing. I think that's great. Okay. Who, who gave you the best career advice, and what was it? Uh, Audrey Smaltz gave me the best career advice. I was uh, Miss Audrey. I, I, Audrey, I, I, I worked her. for the gra- I worked for the ground crew freelance uh, for many many years in between jobs, and and she said, "Be on time, <laughs> be on time." I learned punctuality and absolute bar raised high professionalism from Miss Audrey. All right, mentor or mentee. Both, both. I, I strongly believe there are definitely, you know, it's it's wonderful to have uh, younger people uh, work for the organization and, and people in my life who I mentor. But I always believe you got to continue to be a student, and uh, and I'd be really quite arrogant if I did not have somebody that I leaned on and looked to to help me continue to learn and grow. Okay, what's the best path to promotion? Hmm. 
the best path to promotion is finding a way to be of value, to really be a contributor uh, at, at any stage in my career. I've always had my own goals, but I've always been cognizant of the goals of the organization and fitting in to what their model is and making sure that I add more to it. So if I were to leave, they would feel my absence. Ah, I love that. Feel the absence. <laughs> Be so valuable. They feel your absence. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, when do you know when it's time that it's time to pivot? I think uh, for myself personally or for the brand or both? Both. Both. Mm-hmm. I think when the growth stops, when the growth stops, when something just becomes stale and there's no more, uh, oh man, I'm dating myself. I'm thinking about uh, um, uh, Sex in the City where they used to talk about the Zazazu. Uh-huh. If there's no Zazazu, if there's no more uh, inspiration to something, then it's time to do something different. Yes, yes. And what makes a candidate memorable? Definitely, obviously, there's the obvious things on a resume as far as qualifications, but there's certain people that walk in the room and they light up a room. And again, when they leave the room, you feel their presence leave the room with them. And when someone brings an essence about them to an environment that you just know that having them there day to day is going to add something to that environment and that they're going to bring that joie de vivre. That to me has always been a key quality that I've looked at in a candidate. It's hard to quantify, but it's something that you feel. And so far that gut instinct uh, has, has, has served me well. Yeah. Um, And what, and last question, what's the best interview prep tip you can offer our, our listeners? Definitely know the organization you're going into. Know the organization. When I was first looking for a job, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have all that. So there'd be, you know, just searching and getting an idea of an organization was harder to do. Nowadays, you can find just about anything about the organization. So have an idea of what their goals and their objectives are and where they're going and how you might fit in. Um, But definitely do some research. Do some research. Let that interview be about bringing something to the table versus just about what I want. I'm here to be fabulous. You know, that (laughs) that's cute. And there's nothing wrong with being fabulous, but being there to add fabulosity to the environment so that everything is more fabulous. That definitely is worth far more. Oh, Karen, that was amazing. (laughs) So, um, I, 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 I'm learning something. I've been in this industry for a long time. <laughs> so, uh, um, so understanding for, for our listeners, just, just understanding how to approach, even from hearing Karen's story, how to approach an organization you're interested in. They're on, you know, you don't have to wait for a job to be open to approach an organization. Definitely. I think that that's a key takeaway. Um, the be on time. Mm. The be on time and be flexible in not only in your industry, but in the role that you might have. I mean, yeah, that those are some key um, gems that Karen's dropped on this podcast today. And, um, you know, 
and I, and I love the idea that, that you bring something to the table. So you have to be you when you come on your interview so that when you leave, they feel that your presence is gone. Don't try to be somebody else because yeah. then, you know, they're not going to feel anything. They're going to feel the struggle that the push pull that you have in trying to be what you think they want when they, what they probably want is who you are already. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely agreed. Authenticity counts a lot. Okay. It, it counts a lot. Right. On that note, Karen, I want to thank you so much for your time. You with are the, very welcome. This, this was a great chat, and I I'm, and I'm sure it will help so many people who are interested in 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 breaking into beauty and succeeding in the industry. So, thanks again. You're welcome. Take care. That's our show for today. Remember that there's more than one way to the top and the most important step is the first one. So start right here.